chapter 8. If you're new with us, we're working our way through an Old Testament book called um, Ecclesiastes. And throughout our study in this book, we've sought to uncover an answer to a single question that's asked in the first chapter. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3, it says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a way of asking, does life matter? And if so, why? What makes life on this earth meaningful? What makes it worth it? Is it, in fact, worth it? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is seeking to provide us an answer to, and it's an extremely important question. At some point in your life, you will grapple with that if you haven't already. And from that very first chapter, this book has described through the eyes and ears and experiences of a certain person who calls himself the preacher in this book, that through his observation and experience, he sought to find the answer to that question, what is the meaning of life? For eight chapters, we've journeyed with him down uh, various paths only to invariably find out that each one has been, in a sense, a, a dead end. The, the particular path he's taken, for example, the path of pleasure, hasn't ended in an ultimate answer to the question. And he actually holds his answer until the very end of the book, so I haven't even given it to you yet. And yet, along the way, we've been learning important things as we've gone. We've seen him in frustration cry out the word vanity. That word means uh, that, that life is a vapor, that it's hard to grasp, that it comes as quickly, that it leaves as quickly as it comes. We've seen him in anguish over the brokenness of the world, and we've listened as he's articulated some very hard thoughts about very difficult things. But none of those thoughts are as dark as the ones we reach today. This, chapter 9, the first paragraph, is the lowest, uh, most exacerbated point in the book. Uh, you've heard the expression that uh, someone is either a glass half empty or a glass half full person. Don't elbow the person next to you, that's not nice. This moment in the preacher's life, he, he seems to take his uh, glass half empty and smash it on the ground. This is the, the darkest, most vexing and perplexing moment in the, in the book and maybe in his life. And it is the, the most daunting topic we ever have to consider ourselves. The topic, of course, is death. And what does the fact that all of us die say about the meaning of life? Answers to questions about the meaning of life must wrestle with the reality of death. And so that's what we will consider together this morning. Some of us, very likely, rarely if ever, slow down long enough to contemplate death. 
We're under the illusion that it's far away and that it can be dealt with later. When in reality, you have absolutely no idea when you'll die. There are others, of course, who are consumed by thoughts of death. It's on your mind essentially all the time. Perhaps you find yourself consistently worried about your own death or the death of those you love. Either way, or somewhere in between, my hope and prayer is that God will draw you closer to him this morning and us closer to each other as we consider a topic that is so rarely spoken of out in plain view, except at funerals. So with that in mind, let's look together at uh, the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands or the hand of God. The, the preacher has struggled mightily over the span of eight chapters. He's learned experientially that money, sex, accomplishments, and even wisdom are insufficient to render life meaningful. And consequently, he's, he's had repeated existential crises that have shaken him down to his very core. His faith has been rattled along the way, but it's never been rattled in such a way that he's questioned the sovereignty of God. He's had lots of questions about God and lots of questions for God, but for some reason that single doctrine has never been something he's wondered about. The, the truth that God possesses ultimate rule and is in complete control has remained rock solid in his mind and heart. Now, while at this point in the book, the preacher has not yet reached a point of peace about the meaning of life, he's absolutely convinced that God has absolute rule, that God is in charge. That's what that phrase, the hand of God, is getting at. God, of course, doesn't have a hand. He's, he is a spirit. And yet, the language, the image is meant to help us understand that he does, in fact, hold everything. The, the image is meant to help us see his rule, his supervision, his power, his control. Maybe you remember the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Now, that's, uh, that's not just a silly children's song. It's actually true. God does hold everything in his hand. But is that positive or is that negative? If you are a Christian and you don't find yourself uncomfortable in this message, I'm not doing it very well. Because this paragraph is designed to provoke that thought. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that God has the whole world in his hands? In, in light of the fact 
that life is full of so much pain and disappointment and suffering only for it to end in death. Is it good that God's got the whole world in his hand? Well, hear how he phrases it in the rest of verse 1. Whether it is love or hate, man, meaning mankind, mankind does not know. Both are before him. Now, let me just be transparent here. The meaning of that sentence is uh, disputable. If you line up a whole bunch of English translations, you'll find that some of them take it in slightly different ways. What I mean is it, it could be referring to love and hate as human emotions. And the passage we'll be reading in a little bit will do that very thing. But that makes little sense at this point in the passage. In fact, I think it's much more likely the preacher here is thinking about God. He's saying, how can you know if God loves you or hates you? How do you figure that out? Well, if we look at our circumstances in life, then ought we conclude that God loves us or hates us? Is God's hand for us or against us, we might ask. The difficulty here is that if we compare all our circumstances with everybody else around us under the sun, in many ways it's basically impossible to tell. In one sense, the preacher says, we don't know what to expect from God because we don't know what he's doing. We can't see fully what he's up to. And we can't know the future, which he controls. Will God accept us or reject us? That's what it means to say that God loves someone or hates them. Will he love us or hate us? That is the question of all questions. Because he does have the whole world in his hand. It seems to me that many people assume that if God is for them, then it will be easy to tell that. This is, of course, what prosperity gospel churches teach. And they are some of the largest, most prosperous ministries and churches in the world. They teach you'll be problem-free, financially comfortable, healthy, abounding in friends, on and on and on, if God is for you. And God will be for you if you just have enough faith. But it's not that simple. Because we live in a fallen world where hard things happen to everybody. Irrespective of whether or not you love God or hate God. As the preacher beat his head against the wall trying to understand this, it occurred to him that it appears... That God treats everybody essentially in a very broad, general way. God treats everybody the same. Now, he said that because he thought about the way life concludes. Look at verse 2. It, the it is death. 
It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Can you see him taking that glass, that half-empty glass, and just smashing it? There are many, many, many things we do not know, he's saying. But one thing we do know is that one day, all of us are going to die. All of us. Although this, is a controversy, uh, although this is a controversial thing to talk about, and culturally it is a taboo topic, death is universal. It does not matter how many degrees we earn, how healthy we eat, how faithful we are to get eight hours of sleep a night. Eventually, your days are going to end. Unless Jesus returns first, every single one of us will breathe our last breath, and then we'll either be put in a box and buried in the ground, or we'll be burned and turned to ash. Death is inescapable. Steve Jobs, the famous founder of what you probably hold in your pocket, died at the age of 56. He had pancreatic cancer. If someone with Steve Jobs' level of intelligence and ingenuity, if someone with billions of dollars at his disposal could not even extend his own life into his 60s, let alone figure out some way to conquer death, what makes you think you will? You won't. None of us will. No one you ever see will. Death comes for all. What especially troubled the preacher as he thought about this is that it didn't seem to matter how one lives because we all die. That's what is behind the contrasts in the two verses we just read. That's the thing that bothered him the most about this topic. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to mention only half of the contrast in those verses. Essentially what he's pointing out, what he's asking, almost feels blasphemous to say, especially here. What he's asking is, what's the point of following God? If both the godly and the ungodly die the same, why bother? Why not just live as though you have your whole world in your hands? If it all ends the same anyway. Now remember, this was written long before the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was composed long before the New Testament was composed. The preacher's asking, is God for us or against us? And 
from the perspective of looking at life horizontally, not looking up at God, but looking around at the way things appear with our human eyes. It's almost impossible to tell. Regardless of how you live, you will not live forever. And as verse 3 points out, while we do live, evil permeates and saturates every part of our being, and there is madness in our hearts. I think if Ecclesiastes were written today, the the preacher would say, uh, if you don't believe me, go shop at Walmart. Everybody's a bit crazy. This is a mad, mad world. Now, I warned you, (laughs) this is as pessimistic as the book of Ecclesiastes gets. In fact, it's probably as pessimistic as the entire Bible gets. These are the hardest questions in the darkest place. And thankfully, the preacher doesn't stay there. If you look at verse 4, he says, But he who is joined with the living has hope, meaning he's, he's alive. So that's good. And then he, he drives that home with a proverb that we will not understand. He, he says, For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, that clears it all up. Here's what he means. Today, many people treat dogs, you may treat dogs, like you treat people. Pets are thought of like they're almost family members. But in the ancient world, that would have been absolutely unthinkable. Dogs were disgusting, wild scavengers that you kicked and shooed away. They were the epitome of everything nasty. Lions, on the other hand, were symbols of of royalty. They were pictures of power. And yet, what good is a dead lion? You can't do anything with a dead lion. All its strength and honor and royalty is gone. A dead lion can do absolutely nothing. So the point is rather obvious, isn't it? It's Better to be a gross, disgusting scavenger and be alive than it is to have been royalty and full of power and be dead. That's his point. There is value and dignity to life simply because it's life. Now notice some of the problems with death, which he describes in the next couple of verses. For the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. He's saying at least with reference to, again, looking at life like this, looking at life under the sun, without considering what God may be doing in ways we can't see. If you just look around and watch the world. Death is horrible because in death you no longer know anything, 
you receive nothing for your labors, people's memories of you will fade very quickly. How fast does the news cycle of some horrible thing happening move on and no one cares anymore? I mean, it is astonishing. Even our most intense feelings will be gone and will participate in nothing in the world again. As the preacher came face to face with this reality, and it is real, it's true, death is severe. It's awful. And death is sure. Friend, you simply must come to terms with this fact, and the sooner you do, the better off you'll be. You will not evade death. And, Christian, even your faithful obedience to God will not help you avoid that, uninevitable, that um, inevitable outcome. Sooner or later, you're going to be in a box. We live in a time and a place where we are filled with um, entertainment. There are tweets and TikTok videos. There are streaming services and sporting events. There are video games and any random hobby you could possibly imagine. And a little bit of those things is appropriate. But the volume of them we tend to consume has a very, very negative effect. It, it dulls our awareness. It distracts us from our own mortality. But I promise you, unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and unless He returns for His people before your day comes, your life and my life on this earth will cease. If you need proof, pull out that Steve Jobs phone and search for the number. It's changed even during this sermon. Search for the number of people who've died in this country from COVID-19. As of last night, it stands at 754,000. And no one is talking about it. Death is severe. And death is sure. But. Death does not get the last word. The witness of the rest of the Bible provides a tremendous news about life, better life, after death. But before we jump too quickly to those glories of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that become ours through faith and repentance, we need to sit in this passage. We need to take the counsel that this preacher gives us Essentially, he's going to ask us to ask this question. Knowing that death is severe and sure, how shall we live? If death is the inevitable outcome for all of us, 
What do we do in the meantime? How do we make the most of life? Or should we even try? Well, the next section of verses seek to answer those questions. And what they say, my guess is, will shock a lot of us. Look with me starting at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Yes, that's actually in the Bible. It sounds more like a fortune cookie, doesn't it? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, in, in light of the fact that we won't live forever, the preacher is saying, while you do live, really live. Live with joy. Now, this, of course, is not a free pass to sin. The preacher isn't saying anything goes. This isn't the Bible's version of that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. He's not saying what happens on earth stays on earth. No, this is simply a command, a group of commands to savor the gift of life, to to taste what you eat. Don't just gulp it down. Don't just scarf it like a dog. Savor it. Enjoy it. Where did those taste buds come from, after all? God gave them to you. And relish the flavors of what you drink. Don't take it for granted. Why? Because God himself has appointed us to enjoy these gifts. God has ordained joy. Church, pleasure and enjoyment in this life is part of God's design. You, quite frankly, are not living in God's will if you are not enjoying what he's given you. Because he has ordained pleasure for you. That's what the preacher's saying. So enjoy your food, savor each sip of what you drink. This is God's will. That's what he's saying. Reading on, verse 8, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now that one is a lot weirder than the previous verse, isn't it? In the ancient world, long before modern amenities like air conditioning, white was worn to, to repel the heat. It's why anyone here who drives a black car is a moron. <laughs> it is so hot here. White was also worn as a, as a symbol of celebration. It's, it's what you put on to repel something uncomfortable and to head to something full of joy. And, and oil was poured on your head as an indication of honor, and it smelled good, and it helped with dry skin. This was long before you could take a warm shower comfortably every day 
and, and then put lotion on and smell good. People would go months and months and months and months without being able to be in water and get clean. And so oil was a picture of the abundance and the provision of God. So do you get what he's saying? He's saying the, the white garments and the oiled head are pictures of living life to the fullest. Make the most of what you have, he's saying. And he goes on still more. Verse 9, enjoy life with the one whom you love. All the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun. Because that is the portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. The word Sheol means the place of the dead. It's unspecific. It just means you're dead. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Life is short, he's saying. Life is hevel. It's the morning mist that can't be grasped, can't be bottled, can't be stored for later. Just as quickly as it came, it's gone again. It's a vapor. That's what life is. How sad it is to see married people who are grumpy and discontent. Friend, if you're married then enjoy the spouse God's given you. Stop wishing for a different one. I wasn't joking, Pam. <laughs> this is the spouse God's given you. So, Treasure her. Enjoy him. You have absolutely no idea how long you have left. Thank God for that spouse. See and cherish the very best of your spouse. And go gentle on the things that you wish were different. If you're not married and you want to be, then pray for a spouse and take the wise risks when they're wise of communicating interest when there's a candidate around that you're curious about. Perhaps God has marriage for you in the future. And the last verse tells us that whatever we do, to do it with all our might. Don't go through life halfway. Grab the bull by the horns, as they say, and ride it to its fullest. Since death is severe and sure, the preacher's telling us, thoroughly enjoy the life God gives you. Since death is severe and sure, Thoroughly enjoy the life God gives you. There are an awful lot of Christians who need to be told that. I'm thankful that 
this is a, a happy church. And we are not overrun with grumpy, cantankerous, pharisaical Christians. But you probably know some. This might be a great passage to send their way. And your happiness in whatever you've been given is designed by God to be um, a contagion that spreads to others. Christians of all people ought to be the happiest people alive. One of the biggest hindrances to our enjoyment is our lack of being present. Wherever we are, it's incredibly easy for our minds to be somewhere else. You know what I'm talking about? How um, often do you go in a restaurant and see uh, a, what appears to be a married couple sitting across from each other, and they both have their phones out? How often do you do that? How often are you not really where you are? Frankly, uh, I used to be horrible about that. Not so much the phone, but always mentally thinking ahead, contemplating something else. I think it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an occupational hazard that comes with leadership kinds of gifts given to a person who's not yet fully sanctified and mature. All the things that God gives us that are good can, can have an underbelly when our, our sin permeates them. And that's definitely what happened to me. I was always thinking about what needed to get done, who needed help, what issue needed solving, what, what thing needed to happen today so the church could be where it needs to be 10 years from now. And that way of thinking was pervasive enough that honestly, um, most of the time, I wasn't really there to enjoy the present thing. But four and a half years ago, God gave me the gift of a chronic disease. In part, I'm convinced, to break that really bad habit. Many of you know that um, I have been diagnosed with a serious form of something called SLE, or more popularly uh, referred to as lupus. And as a result, I've been on chemo every day for years. My family and I live with a constant awareness that I might have a flare today that kills a vital organ and therefore kills me. Or, because of what I'm on so that I can continue to live, I might catch some bizarre infection that makes it impossible to recover. I don't talk about this much, it's very uncomfortable, but I feel lousy all the time. And I can't do most of the physical things I used to be able to do. It's hard on everybody close to me because the disease is so unpredictable. And on some days I'm a shell of my former self. But brothers and sisters, I can tell you with complete sincerity that my life has never been sweeter. I've never felt weaker and more limited 
but I've also never felt so much gratitude and such an awareness of God's mercy and power and the gifts that he gives me. By God's grace, I've learned to hug my kids tighter, to treasure my wife and see her as even more of the gift that she is. Somehow every conversation has become more precious and moments of laughter are, um, they feel frozen in time. I don't know how else to describe it. One more day feels like an unexpected, undeserved gift to maximize your enjoyment in God. Every sunset is more colorful and every flower is more vibrant. I'm far, far more present to the sweet aromas of life because I smell the stench of death. And I'm convinced this is a really fabulous way to live. Life, you see, is a gift from God. It's a treasure. And since life in this world won't last forever, I'm learning to enjoy it for what it is. That's the point Ecclesiastes is making. When we look across the landscape of the whole Bible, though, we can learn even more. We see that death doesn't have the final word. Think back with me to that passage that you read out loud in the middle of our time of singing, the, the text we read corporately together. It'll be on the screens again. Here's what it says. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, what that's talking about is when our bodies that are breaking down one day are renewed in the resurrection. That's what he's saying. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The, death, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know things that the preacher didn't yet know, because they, they hadn't happened. Because Jesus lived a completely righteous life, he was able to die a substitutionary death. And because he died a substitutionary death, then the wages of sin, which is death, ultimate separation from God, have been dealt with. And that means that for each and every person who trusts Jesus Christ, who turns from sin and gives themselves to him, then death has lost its bite its sting. You see, Christian, Jesus died in your place to give you spiritual life. And one day he will return. And when he returns, we will all be given resurrection bodies like his. Bodies where nothing is busted and not a single new wrinkle will form. Bodies that will last forever. This means that while death is sad and 
It is the end of life as we know it. It is not the end of existence. The best is yet to come. Death is swallowed up in victory. But there's even more. Romans chapter 8, you'll see it on the screens, says this. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life See how that's the first thing on the list? Death doesn't win. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So church, we can, and in fact we must, enjoy the life we've been given. Because we cannot be separated from the love of God. Ever. He will hold us fast. And consequently, we can enjoy the life that God's given us. And the more aware that you are that you will die, the more you will enjoy life. I know this because the scriptures teach it. And I know it because I'm experiencing it. I pray the same for you. Will you stand and let's pray. Before I voice a prayer on our behalf, and if you would talk with God about your own thoughts and feelings, Father, we pray that you would help us to heed your word. I pray for people who have listened to this message who don't think about death hardly ever. That literally the trajectory of the rest of their lives would have been changed this morning. That they would begin to consider that really in actuality we have no idea when we will die. 
and that we only get one shot at this life until then. And there are many people to tell about you, and there is much to enjoy in this life. However bad we might have it, you are a good God who always gives good gifts. And so I pray that they, Lord, would begin to experience the benefits of knowing that we won't live forever. And God, I pray for people on the other end of the spectrum, people who are often consumed with thoughts about death, afraid of that dying process and of what happens after, afraid of people they love leaving them alone. God, would you remind them and would you encourage them and would you strengthen them to see that death has lost its sting? It is nothing to fear because it cannot separate us from you. I pray you would infuse them with a new courage that lasts. And Lord, help us to become more and more and more concerned for those we know who don't know you. And more and more courageous, even as we enjoy life, to tell them about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deep breath. You survived. It's a hard passage, but I hope the Lord will use it in such a way that you will be blessed as a result. In the New Testament, uh, we hear these words for our benediction and then our conversations with one another. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. How? By giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let us go and do so.